This is Archive Atlanta, episode 77, West End. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week, we're covering the West End, one of the oldest and most history-packed neighborhoods of Atlanta. What makes it so magical is not only does it predate Atlanta itself, but it played a prominent role in the history of both white and black Atlanta, which is not something that you can say about other parts of the city. First, let's get our borders established. In 2020, the borders of the West End are Beecher Street and the Beltline along the south, Cascade and Langhorne along the west, I-20 and then a small little section above it on the north, and Whitehall Street on the east. The first fascinating fact is that these borders weren't always so. Originally, the area was much larger and included the historically black colleges and universities of the West Side and Fort McPherson, but we'll cover why they shifted a little later. In 1830, aside from the remaining Native Americans that had not been yet removed from their land, the only settlements and settlers in what is now Atlanta were Hardy Ivy, Richard Todd, and the town of Decatur. I mean, we had Marietta, but this vastness between Decatur and Marietta was just pioneer living. Charner Humphreys came to DeKalb County from South Carolina in 1830, and he settled on a tributary of the South River, just east of Perkinson Road and north of Metropolitan. In a different landlot than his, at the intersection of a Native American trail route, Humphreys built a two-story wood frame whitewashed in with four rooms upstairs and four rooms downstairs. White painted buildings or homes were extremely uncommon at the time, so locals called this the Whitehall Inn, and eventually the road that bordered it was called Whitehall Road. Today, this intersection would be Ralph David Abernathy Boulevard and Lee Street, kind of at the corner of the West End Mall. Across the street from the inn was a small shed that sold wet goods and had a barrel of whiskey in the back for passing travelers. There was also a small racetrack just north of the property. Humphrey's Inn was the only spot for miles where you could get something to eat, drink, meet a friend, rest, and eventually get your mail. In 1835, the United States Postal Service made it a mail stop, and they made Charner Postmaster. Now, it only lasted for a few years. I guess it wasn't busy enough to take mail, um, and they ended that in 1840. The most popular event at Whitehall was the annual Muster Day, when the local militia came together to practice and train. Sidebar history fact, but Georgia is the only state to subdivide each county into smaller militia districts. And this is a remnant of the colonial area. The original intention was to protect white settlers from native tribes, and so it required every able-bodied white male citizen between 18 and 45 to enroll as a militia member. Once the native presence had been removed from the state, the purpose of these groups becomes much more like fraternal social club. But at this time, in the future West End, the 530th militia would definitely be practicing weaponry and skills that they would use, um, and they did it kind of like in a tournament. After this big day of tournaments, they would celebrate with drinking and dogfights. In 1846, the Macon and Western Railroad came through the area, which also attracted more settlement in Whitehall. They had a day pass available, which provided travel into Atlanta. In 1851, Charner Humphrey's wife dies, followed a few years later by their son, and in 1855, he joins them in death. So he would never live to see the development spurred by other men and what his property was to become. The same year he died, George Washington Adair and a group of developers would purchase the land and then subdivide it for development. 
Their plans were interrupted by the Civil War, which came to Atlanta in 1864. The Confederate fortifications designed by L.P. Grant were lined along what is now Lee Street, and that would have been the outer line to protect against the Union Army. The Battle of Ezra Church took place not far from current-day West End, and the old Whitehall Inn was used as headquarters. The racetrack near the inn was sold for use as a military garrison, and parts of what is now Spelman's campus were used to house federal troops during Reconstruction. It's in the post-war period that this was unincorporated county land and a little bit of a lawless zone, so there's no local government structure and therefore not many rules, and it's teeming with saloons and barrooms. Just a few years later, the train establishes commuter service, so you could leave your home in the West End, get to work in Atlanta by 8.30 a.m., even come home for lunch, and then back to finish out your day. With this, developer Georgia Dare, along with John Thrasher and Thomas Alexander, make a hard push to sell the suburb. To better market the neighborhood, they would rename it the West End, after London's fancy theater district. This period until around 1870 was really pivotal for the West End, and it's when we see its boundaries change. When they started, there were 621 people listed as residents, and 300 of those are African-American. And this doesn't even count the federal troops stationed at Fort McPherson during Reconstruction. So to be able to sell this as an upper-middle-class white suburb where you could, quote, catch the westerly winds before contaminated by smoke and dust of Atlanta, end quote, things had to change. The area along the northern edge of the neighborhood, home to Morehouse, was excluded from the West End, along with Fort McPherson. The whole area was zoned strictly residential, with heavy industrial sites relegated to the outside of the new borders. There's also a liquor license established, liquor dealers are being heavily taxed, and drunk people are subject to arrest. Streets are then named for white Confederate Southerners. Lee for Robert E. Lee, Gordon for John Gordon, Ashby for Turner Ashby, and Lawton for Alexander Lawton. Other streets like Howell and Peoples were named for local residents or Atlanta businessmen. After all that change, as we learned in the streetcar episode, Adair and Richard Peters charter the Atlanta Street Railroad Company, and they bring the first streetcar line to the West End in 1871. This mule-drawn line ran along Whitehall Street to Lee Street and then to Gordon, which is now Ralph David Abernathy. In the 1880s, long before annexation into Atlanta, the West End was operating as its own separate municipality. They had a mayor, city council, um, they even had the West End Academy. So city council purchases about five acres from Major John McCaslin. They sell half and they use the profits to build a $5,000 two-story structure to teach the children of its prominent residents. This is not free public education, so although Atlanta had already established their public school system, at the West End Academy, it cost $1 per month payable up front to educate your kid through the 11th grade. The last graduating class walked in 1894, but what's really cool is that the current day West End actually has an Atlanta public school called the West End Academy. Through the 1880s and early 1890s, the West End became the place to live. There's a laundry list of who's who with homes here, newspaper articles, especially from 1890. They list names, but even better, they have hand-drawn photos of the most prominent mansions. Um, It's like a giant West End brag book. So I'm going to try to post some of those photos online for you guys to see. The entire Howell family lived here. The captains, majors from major wars, judges, uh, William Venable, who owned Stone Mountain with his brother. He was described as having the largest and costliest house. And George Bowles, who was a book dealer, had the most beautiful home on Ashby. Sadly, almost none of these homes are still around for us to see, with the exception of two. 
The Hammonds House has been determined to have been built on or around 1857. And in the 1860s, it was purchased by Malcolm Johnson, who turned this from a simple, plain home into the gorgeous Eastlake Victorian style you see today. Like other neighborhoods in Atlanta, in the 1960s, this home fell into abandoned disrepair, and it was saved by Dr. Otis Thrash Hammonds. He was the one to do a loyal and extensive renovations. And Dr. Hammonds was not just an anesthesiologist, but an avid art collector and local arts patron. So after he died from complications of AIDS, the house became an African-American art museum that is open today, and it has incredible exhibits. The Wren's Nest is also open to the public today as a museum, but it began its life as a very simple farmhouse built around 1870. It was initially called the Broomhead Property, but once it became home to Joel Candler Harris in 1884, the house and its history were changed forever. Harris was the one that turned it um, into the Queen Anne Victorian style, and he lived there until his death in 1908. So Harris, if you don't know, he's famous for his Uncle Remus and Critters stories, which were told to him by slaves when he was a boy. That in itself is a whole other episode. So I hope to have that for you coming up one day and we can talk about that in detail. Um, But the Wren's Nest, not only was it his home, but it also held the first meetings of St. Anthony's Catholic Church as Mrs. Harris was part of the Catholic Ladies Club and she had Sunday school in the basement led by her daughter. During the Atlanta race riot of 1906, which I have its own episode about, um, his son Joel Jr. had hid black residents in their basement to protect them from murderous white mobs. After Harris died, the house became a museum in 1913 with financial support from both Andrew Carnegie and Teddy Roosevelt, among others. In 1894, the residents voted on annexation. And you have to remember that without incorporation, you don't have city services. So the population of the West End grew and they needed paved streets and sewer lines and schools and police and fire. And because the neighborhood had been crafted to exclude heavy business districts, there really wasn't a lot of tax revenue. So not everybody was on board with annexation. Um, Comically, the West End's tax rate was 50 cents on every $100 and the city of Atlanta's was $1.50 on every $100. So there was a little bit of outrage, but nonetheless, the West End became part of Atlanta uh, in that same year, 1894, and it became the seventh ward. As we entered into the 20th century, the West End transitioned from ultra-fashionable Victorian city into a more modest, you know, middle-class but upper-middle-class neighborhood with a strong business district along Gordon Street. It's still majority white, however, and we will get into that change shortly. The first park space for residents was created around 1906. Howell Park was carved out of the land and estate of Evan P. Howell, named Woodlawn, and it was one of the grandest pieces of properties in the West End. So when he dies in 1905, his friends want to honor him, and so they implore the city to purchase some of his acreage and create a park in his memory. Neighbors are super excited, and they raise $2,000 within 10 minutes. The mayor of Atlanta, however, was not so excited. After the city council approves the park plans, Mayor Woodward actually rejects the resolution. His suggestion instead is like, listen, let's erect a statue. It'll be a lot better. Um, But I, I actually liked his reasoning for saying no. So he did not think that the West End needed a public park, as each home in the area had its own park-like front yard. And instead, the money should be spent for parks in manufacturing districts like Decatur or Marietta Streets, where children are in dire need of a place to play. In the end, though, his veto was overturned, and Howell Park still exists today in the West End. 
1911, the city of Atlanta had a push for temporary playgrounds for children to play in. Um, There was almost none of them. So 11 were opened for white children and one for African Americans. In the West End, Mrs. J.T. Dargan loans her three and a half heavily wooded acres to the city for use as a playground. And what I love is that she contracted with the Atlanta Ice Company to give the kids free ice cream in the summer. In 1922, a new junior high school was planned for the West End, and the naming committee approves Joseph E. Brown, honoring the governor of Georgia during the Civil War and member of the Board of Education in the 1880s. It's a beautiful Romanesque revival building um, designed initially by Pringle and Smith, but they had an addition put on in 1929 by G. Lloyd Preacher. In 1947, the school switched um, from junior high into a high school, and it's still a high school today, not too far off the Southwest Beltline. There's an article from 1890 that goes into every piece of news basically going on in the West End, and here's where we get a really great update about churches, Um, and I like the way they put it, like the Presbyterians, you know, have done this, they purchase a lot, the Christian church is meeting over here in the store, Um, the Episcopalians just lost their reverend to St. Philip's in Buckhead, and, but there are churches listed here um, in these earliest days that are still around today. And the first is Park Street Methodist, which was founded in 1878 as a mission. In 1890, they're worshiping out of a simple yellow pine structure. And then throughout the years, many different homes. But today, it sits imposingly on the corner of Park and Lee Streets. And it's a common sight for those stuck at the traffic light waiting to get on I-20. Don't laugh because you know you've been there too. St. Anthony's Catholic Church started, as I mentioned earlier, in the home of Joel Candler Harris, but built its present-day sanctuary in 1923, and it's designed by my favorite architect, A. Tenike Brown, in a Gothic revival style. The West End Baptist Church was founded in 1888, and although it had a very small church in 1890, by 1952, it moved to a building fronting Gordon Street. During the 60s civil rights movement, its white pastor, Dr. Shands, joined other religious leaders in signing something called the Minister's Manifesto, a declaration of equality. After the dismay of other church officials here, Shands left, and that kind of marked the beginning of the end for the congregation. But thankfully, in 1971, a new congregation moved into the building, and they changed the name on the front to West Hunter Street Baptist. So that is the church that you see today. And instead of being on Gordon, it's on Ralph David Abernathy, which is very fitting because this is the church of Dr. Abernathy, who is a close friend of Dr. King's and a civil rights leader. Racial tensions have been around Atlanta since it was born, but in the 1920s, the city and the state began passing racialized segregation ordinances and using violence to keep African-American residential areas away from the borders of the West End. And this was de facto for decades. I mean, in 1952, they had the white um, Atlanta Board of Realtors and then the Black Empire Real Estate Board that came to this very unofficial handshake agreement designating which neighborhoods in the city would be Black and which would be white. Ashby Street, which is now Joseph E. Lowry Boulevard, was designated as the official color line. And so on the east were white neighborhoods and on the west were black neighborhoods. The thing is that there was only one white neighborhood west of that line. And you guessed it, it was the West End. 
So it's no surprise that the demographics of the West End didn't last long. Um, white flight occurred all over Atlanta in this period. And local white business leaders, they guided the Atlanta Housing Authority to construct public housing that would act as a buffer between the West End and Black neighborhoods to the north. They even invited, it's like one of the few places in Atlanta where they invite urban renewal to the area. Um, and in this time, Interstate I-20 is built kind of in the mid-50s. And that would, again, cut off the West End from the concentration of HBCUs um, and, again, Black neighborhoods. So by 1976, the West End's population was 86% Black. The neighborhood now is most certainly in or through gentrification, which is also a whole other topic for another episode. And there, there are so many more places in the neighborhood that I didn't have enough time to cover. The Gordon Street Theater, the Lonnie Watkins Building, Ruralist Press Building, even the Wesson Mall. But thankfully, uh, Historic Atlanta did a virtual map tour that they did for Streets Alive last year. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes for you guys and you can just sit at home on your computers and click through and see photos and read little snippets about each of these buildings. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's West End, a settlement born from the crossroads of Native Americans, developed for the wealthy white Gilded Age, the poster child for racial segregation, and then home to the 60s civil rights movement. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts, and I hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.